Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode. On this one, I'm going to be calling Luke Resip, who is studying to get his PhD at Mississippi State University, which is home of the MSU Deer Lab. If you guys watch the main channel, I think it was two springs ago, we went down there, visited Dr. Bronson Strickland and Dr. Steve Damaris, and we recorded with them talking about deer movement, and we had an awesome conversation with them, and that's also when we met Luke. Since then, him and I have been trying to get together to record one of these podcasts and talk about deer movement, but there's a bunch of other topics I'd like to cover with Luke in the future. He's done a lot of cool things with deer and deer research and has a lot of great knowledge to share, so I want to keep talking with him. But on this one, we're talking about buck movement specifically. We also get to talking about the differences between facts that are found through research and hunting lore, some of the things that we talk about as hunters all the time that we believe to be true, but maybe aren't really that true once the research is done on those topics. So we talk about things like weather, hunting pressure, moon phase, and how all of those things affect deer movement. We also talk about the timing and the duration of the rut and how that really varies more than we think. Typically as hunters, we just say, you know, this time frame is quote unquote the rut, but really through research as well as hunting observations, Luke and I believe that it's more important to focus on hunting throughout the whole season and just trying to learn different tactics for different times of the year because you never know when you're going to run into some crazy rut action. So if you guys like this podcast, let us know. There's also a version on our THP podcast YouTube channel. There's a link to that channel in the description of this podcast. And also in the description, there are links to our website where you can find all kinds of apparel and gear that we're using all the time when we're out hunting. Also, you'll find a link to Go Wild down there. And Go Wild is a free social community where nothing is censored. It was built by hunters and anglers just like us to combat mainstream social media censorship. Go Wild also gives you points for things like sharing trophies, doing gear reviews, and inviting your friends to join Go Wild. As you earn points, you unlock awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, knives, huge discounts, and if you create a free account, you unlock $10 just for trying it out. The app is free and it's available in the App Store and you can also, like I said earlier, check the description of this podcast to find a link as well. All right, guys, let's talk with Luke about buck movement and hope you guys enjoy. What up, man? Not much, dude. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing great. Well, dude, I'm a little stressed, but not, not too bad. I'm sure you can relate. Besides audio problems, what's stressing you? Uh, just trying to upload a YouTube video, but it's not really even that big of a deal. You know, yeah, it's just I stuff that. that when I look at like the whole compilation of things that stress me out, they're usually very insignificant things. Like the things that really should stress me out. I'm like, cause like you plan for them and you make sure you prioritize time in your schedule to take care of them. And so like, you don't get that stressed out about them, but the things that stress me out, it's like, it's like, Oh, I forgot to pressure wash the tractor. <laughs> it's just like yeah. dumb stuff, <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. What are you up to today? Well, today I was moving equipment that I have failed to move for the last like four months from our food plot planting season. We borrowed a bunch of really nice equipment from our ag guys on campus. And because like, you know, our, us wildlife people were like living over here in peasant world with all of our <laughs> wildlife equipment, like our discs with bearings that 
are have been shot for like three years and you know just all of our stuff so we borrowed equipment from our ag guys on campus and it's like super nice stuff and it's been sitting over at one of our properties for a few months and we finally got that returned today and uh me and my wife colleen we're getting ready to go on christmas break tomorrow so we're right. you know getting running around like chickens with their heads heads cut off trying to you know get ready to travel go to virginia see some family so cool and you're from virginia i'm from pennsylvania that's originally. what i thought i yeah. thought it was northeast yeah i'm from pa i did my undergrad at virginia tech okay so and then i just keep getting further and further south yeah yeah, I mean, I guess talk a little bit about like what you're doing currently and kind of the position you're in and what you're learning and we'll just kind of go from there. All right, so cur- I'm currently working on my uh, PhD and my PhD is focused on uh, food plots, regenerative ag food plots versus conventional food plot management. We've got an old field, early successional plant community component. Um, and we've got study sites all over the place for that. So really for the last six, nine months, I've been running around like crazy trying to manage, you know, food plots and weather conditions and, you know, equipment on properties from, you know, Mississippi to Missouri. That's Um, pretty cool. That's what I'm doing right now, which is awesome. I love it. Um, but it is a lot, uh, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I will say, however, you know, this is the first year that I've been, in Mississippi where I've hunted this little. I mean, I like I didn't think I thought I would always find a way to make time to hunt, no matter how busy I was, because I've been I like to think I've been pretty good at that in the past. Like, you know, you prioritize your work and you really grind it out, you know, work late into the evening or whatever and then the morning you've got from six to six to nine or whatever to hunt. And this year has just not been like that. Um <laughs> It's been it's been tough. Um, I mean, mentally, because you know that's kind of one of my things that I just enjoy doing. But yeah, um, we've uh, we've been having a lot of fun though. My master's degree it was all focused on prescribed fire. Um, I did that here at the MSU Deer Lab, which is where I am now for my PhD. Um, prior to that, I was at Virginia Tech. Um, prior to that, I was running around the hills of Pennsylvania shooting squirrels and doing <laughs> stuff. So that's awesome. So, like, how did you decide to kind of go this route? For like us, it was, oh, we like making videos, so we just kept kind of pursuing that. But it's it's kind of that same core, I think, uh, interest of hunting, right? Yeah. um, I kind of had an unusual um, introduction to the hunting space. Like, my dad, my dad hunted when he was younger, but he didn't introduce me to hunting and i didn't really like i had some buddies that i hunted with in high school and like you know i'd go deer hunt every now and then but i didn't kill my first deer until i was 19 and which i just feel like is very uh unconventional for most you know people that pursue a career whether it's you know being a biologist or in the hunting media world or whatever like most people you know from the time they're four years old they're in the tree stand with their dad or their (laughs) grandpa or whoever doing stuff but I didn't really get into that until I moved to Virginia and I was actually going to Bible college when I first moved to Virginia. So start from when I was in Pennsylvania, my life was kind of a mess. I decided I needed to turn it around, went to Bible college for a couple of years. While I was at Bible college, um, I decided I wanted, wanted to go to a four year university and Virginia tech was the closest one. 
I'd done construction for a number of years, just doing, you know, general contracting type stuff. And so I was kind of teeter-tottering between construction and wildlife management just because it sounded interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't, know, I didn't know anything about wildlife management. I thought the only career that somebody could have in wildlife management was being a game warden. And um, as I kind of began thinking about this, I, you know, started working on a dairy farm in Virginia for a number of years. And I got permission to hunt that farm. And this is literally the first time I'd ever, like, seriously been in the deer woods like at all and so i got permission to hunt this dairy farm and i somebody donated me a left-handed bow with a draw length that was like three inches too short for me i mean i'm kind of lanky and so like i draw and my bow arm would be like i mean it would be it would be so bad <laughs> it was bad and uh, i climbed i climbed up in a tree it was like the day after opening day and i climbed up in a tree and uh a three-year-old eight-point walked under my tree stand at like 15 yards, shot him. He ran 15 yards and piled up. And I was like, wow, this is easy. Like, <laughs> why, does, why does everyone talk about how hard this is? And um, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I mean, that's really how it happens. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but that's really what introduced me to deer and deer management. And so I kind of like found my passion for deer hunting at the same time that I found my passion for studying deer and deer management, habitat management, which is kind of like it's it's been a fun journey because a lot of people start with the passion to hunt deer and they start mm-hmm. with the love to hunt deer. And then, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, they find that they can make a career out of it, so they do it. I was doing them on a parallel path, which I think is it's just been a lot of fun. Yeah, that is cool. And then... Like, as you've became more and more interested, what do you feel like some of the things that, because that is a unique perspective, I think that, you know, if somebody has hunted their whole life, they've probably heard a lot of the things that are common, you know, terminology or common thoughts amongst hunters. And as you've got more and more interested in the animal itself and then managing for that animal. I'm sure you're seeing a lot of things that are like misconceptions by people that have been doing it longer. And that probably is a bit of a struggle for you at times, or it's like, now oh, here's these guys that think this thing and have been doing it their whole life. But like, here, I've got this education on this and I see that it maybe is not that way. And then you're trying to explain it to them. Those things I'm sure is it, what, like, what are some of those things i guess well there are certainly examples of that and like there are certainly examples of things that and i didn't come to i didn't come to hear about these things or you know like the hunting lore the things you hear around the campfire all those things like i didn't i didn't that didn't become a part of my headspace until years after i started hunting and years after i started you know studying uh in my academic you know pursuits deer but what I will say is when I, when I first started thinking about deer and really falling in love with deer and just their behavior and their management and hunting them and like, it's all very interwoven for me. But I will say when I first, you know, started to do that, I really delved in hard to the scientific side of things. Whereas I feel like most people, they get into it because of the popular media side of things. You know, and it's not that one's right or one's wrong, but I, you know, 
read a lot of scientific articles and I read a lot of National Deer Association articles where they were like kind of breaking down the science, making it easier for me to understand. And it was, it was kind of funny. And this is a realization I've been coming to over the last couple of years, but I've almost been having to uh, um, unlearn things that I thought I knew. And like, I feel like it's a similar thing for hunters coming from the hunting lore side of things to the science side of things. But like, there are things that I, like I've been, one of the things we might talk about today is buck movement. And so, you know, we all love to hunt bucks. We all love to hunt mature bucks. I've looked at hundreds of thousands, millions of GPS points of bucks moving across the landscape. And I've read lots of research papers on how they do it and like there's just so much literature out there about how deer move across the landscape. And so one of the things I've noticed is that when I go into the woods to hunt, I often have this lens up of, oh, I shouldn't sit there because science. I shouldn't <laughs> sit there because of probability. Like I, I like I microanalyze what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and where I'm at and where I should be based on X and Y based on what the science says. And I often find that I'm not very successful when I do that. <laughs> and so like, I've, I've really been trying to the last few years, like just take a step back and be like, but what does the hunter side of your brain say? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like, there, there are some things that the hunter side of my brain and the science side of my brain will probably never reconcile. Like weather, for example, like hunter, like, you know, hunters love to be in the woods the day after a cold front or when a cold front's blowing through and it's been beaten wind and driving rain for a day and the deer hold up and then the day after it rolls through it's clear and it's crisp and it's blue sky and there's just deer all over the place but when you look at the science it says "Eh, it's not really going on you know so it's like but then the hunter side of my brain i go out there and i experience that a few times and i'm like i probably should be in the woods those days Mm -hmm. so it's just it's and we can get into why i think some of that is there's a lot of theories on it but um a lot of that for me has been honestly the opposite. It's been it's been going from what I thought should happen based on what we know about what deer do and their biology and their behavior with GPS collars, and it's been reconciling that with what I've what I see deer do in the woods, and there's a lot of value in that. Like <laughs> a lot of the, there there's so much value to research and there's so much value to science and there's so much value to experimentation and what it can teach us but at the end of the day like that's not going to that's not going to punch a tag for you you know you got to get out there and you got to you got to learn it and you got to do it and i just got to shut that part of my brain off sometimes and that's mm-hmm. i find more success that way than when i keep that part of my brain on yeah i i i think of that similar when i see uh how some hunters will like hyper analyze trail camera photos, for example. It's like, man, on the on the other end of that spectrum, I don't have any cameras. I don't run them. Like I got buddies that you know, I'll look at their pictures or whatever. But like, I don't have one myself, so I never like go back after the season and look at that. And I just think to myself when I see that, like, yes, I'm sure there's some great benefit to it, but at the same time. Like, I think I would go insane. I think I would, that would be the recipe of overthinking it to the max. So like, to your point, it seems like with even more, you know, more of these resources to like predict buck movement, it's kind of the same thing. You're just 
have a tendency to maybe overthink it at times, which we all do, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't run cameras anymore, and it's not because part of it's because my I hunt all public land, and all my cameras get stolen. <laughs> right. Part of it, and I just don't have you know unlimited resources to buy new cameras all the time. But the other part of it is like when, and I guess this kind of goes hand in hand with. Uh, trying to predict how deer are going to move based on what you've learned from the science. That's just not as fun. Yeah. It's just not as fun. Like when I've got, when I've got cameras on a 50 acre grid throughout a property on every good deer trail. And when the pre-rut starts on every good scrape and in every good staging area and on every good food plot. And I like, when I feel like I've got a really good tab on the deer that are in the area and what they're doing, I go into the stand with my expectations right here. You know what I mean? Like, this is what I expect to see. If I see, if I see less than that, I'll be disappointed. And if if I see more, I'll be very surprised. Mm -hmm. But when I don't run cameras and I go into an area, like my range is like this, like I, it's very possible. I might not see anything. That's how it honestly goes most of the time for me. But like, then you go in an area and you see like the other day one of my buddies came down from from virginia and hunted with me and we were seeing you know multiple bucks within just an hour and it's just like if 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 i had cameras in that area and i expected to see that or knew that the bucks were in there i may have never hunted there i mean who knows it's just not as much fun to me when you just like have a tab on all this stuff like just Mm -hmm. go out there and hunt (laughs) yeah when you talk about buck movement what are some of the things that jump out to you as things that maybe would help the hunter like if you were just like hey zach one thing that i think maybe would help you what comes to mind um there is no average deer that's what i'd say there is no average deer we've and this is one of the things that i think hunters can take away from a lot of the science that's been done on adult buck movement all all over the place it's certainly not just the msu deer lab like we've done a lot but there are universities all over the country that have you know put collars on deer and looked at how they move across the landscape and if you really sit down and look at that data the one thing it will consistently tell you is that every buck is an individual we love to take averages and we love to take the population mean and we love to, you know, extrapolate from that, from our sample. And like, we love to do all the sciencey stuff, but the average isn't very interesting to me. The average is very useful for making management decisions, right? And that's mm-hmm. what state agencies, that's what federal agencies have to do. That's what property managers have to do a lot of time. They have to make a decision based on the average. But what's really interesting is the individual and how they deviate from the average. And some of the work that I've been involved in here at Mississippi State clearly demonstrates that bucks are, they don't fit a mold. Like even when we, even when we recognize that they are individuals and we try to give them room to have a personality, that's one of the kind of terms that we've come up with to describe some of these movement behaviors, buck personalities. Mm-hmm they don't fit clearly into any of these personalities. Like it's, it's totally a continuum. You've got, like we talk a lot about uh, buck personalities based on their home range characteristics and their movement. So we've got sedentary bucks that generally speaking, they have a single home range on average is about 800 acres. 
and that's where they spend 95% of their time. They may go on an excursion a couple times a year, bounce outside of that home range during the rut or early spring. Um, but about 70% of our bucks fall into that sedentary category. And then the other 30% of our bucks are what we call mobile, and they've got multiple home range segments. So they, they literally have got, you know, two different spots on average about four and a half miles apart, but the farthest we've documented is almost 19 miles apart. <laughs> and they travel between those home ranges, home range segments, multiple times every year. And that's very reminiscent of what we'd see in um, the northern Great Lakes states or out west in like Wyoming or Montana where we've got mm -hmm. migratory deer populations. They are moving between seasonal home ranges that help them balance resources that they need at different times throughout the year. Mm -hmm. Now, here in the South, think about it. We don't, we don't have those extreme seasonal resource fluctuations. Yep. Our, we've got a really long growing season. Our growing season starts in, I mean, if you really wanted to like be critical about it, I could make an argument that our growing season starts in early February. Yeah. And then it goes until November, maybe even early December some years. And so, like, we've got a really long growing season, and then when we get to winter time, our winters are not very severe. We don't get, we hardly get any snowfall. Our uh, low temperatures are in the 40s and 50s a lot of time. It's just, it's just not that severe. But we still have deer moving like a migratory animal. So it's very out of context. So about 30% of our bucks are doing that, even though they're not trying to balance three-foot snowfall and food. You know, and so kind of, uh, that was a long rambling thing, but <laughs> I do that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Where I was, where I was going with that is that our sedentary deer, which make up about 70% of our individuals, the average home range size for the sedentary deer is, and I'm talking, when I say sedentary deer, I'm talking mature adult bucks, two and a half mm -hmm. years old and older. We've got bucks that were collared. There were two and a half. We've got bucks that were collared. We estimated at seven and a half. The average home range size for those individuals was about 800 acres. The average home range size for the mobile bucks was 2,400 acres. But if you look at just the sedentary bucks, average 800 acres, we had a buck that for two years, his home range was about 160 acres. I mean, small. When we think of doe home range size, we don't think of that small. We're usually thinking two, three, four, maybe 500 acres, depending on landscape context for an adult doe home range. A 200-acre home range for a, an adult buck, that's small. I mean, he was spending the majority of, of his time on the edge of one large ag field and in the adjacent woodlot. I mean, like he wasn't going anywhere and then we've got sedentary bucks that are classified as sedentary because they've got one home range segment 1500 acres 2000 acres so i think uh and i've certainly fallen on this trap too i think one of the issues that we run into is thinking that i had this like for example this kind of like thought process i had a deer pr patterned two years ago and uh maybe you shot him two years ago right and you had history with that deer for three or four years and you had a lot of trail camera photos you had a lot of observations in the field your neighbors saw him other people that were hunting saw him you found his sheds like you felt like you had a really good idea of what that deer did now 
fast forward two years and maybe you get another buck in the same area. It's I have a tendency to think those two deer should behave in a similar way. A lot of time they do not behave in a similar way. You can have two deer that are the same age that have similar antler characteristics that you collared at the same time that are living in the same area and they do two totally different things. Two totally different things. Mm-hmm. So I think... I guess the way I'd summarize all that up is just that deer are absolutely individuals. They've got their own personalities and it, it's hard for us to recognize because like our eyeballs and the way our brain works evolutionarily is cued into seeing the individual differences in people mm-hmm. because that's what matters to our fitness like facial features and personality and behavior and mannerisms and the tone of your voice and all of these things. That's what we are. That's what we are uh, programmed to cue in on. We're not programmed to cue in on the way a buck looks, right? The way his facial features are, the way he holds his body, the way he holds his ears, the way he bristles his hair, the way he all of these things. And that's just how he looks, let alone how he moves and how he interacts with other bucks. Like we don't have a clue about most of that stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, in, in these studies where we have the opportunity to put GPS collars on dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of bucks, that's awesome. Right. But we, we're still not collaring. I mean, in the best, in the best case, we're collaring us, uh, the majority of bucks out there, but in Mm -hmm. most collar studies, we don't even have 50% of the bucks in the landscape collared. So it's like, how representative is our sample? How are these bucks interact? Like, we see two bucks, you know, their GPS points come really close together, right? And we're like, oh, like, wow, those two, this is what those bucks did when they interacted. But what about the other 10 bucks they interacted with we had no idea about, you know? Right. There's so much individual variation to it. So do you think on, uh, like, you mentioned our brains are wired to do that for people, I feel like as I've hunted more and more, I definitely don't have it nailed down, but I've gotten a lot better at just quickly picking out like little differences between deer and also kind of reading body language. That's something that I feel, you know, when I look back to when I was a kid, I had zero idea being a tree stand with my bow and I'd be watching this buck coming up. It's like, if I had any idea, like really which way he was even looking, it would be surprising, let alone, you know, using his signs to tell me what he was kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that that's something that can kind of be learned a little bit? Like just like body language stuff? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I completely think it is. I think as much as we're programmed to see those, you know, uh, body language cues, behavioral cues, tone of the voice and people, you know, we've also got some pretty deep roots in hunting mm-hmm. and like, the things that you just described are um, characteristics about a hunter that makes them more successful. Mm-hmm. And we're not that far removed from when we were very reliant on being successful hunters. Right mm-hmm. now, we have the luxury, mo- the vast majority of us have the luxury of being able to go hunt and not fill a tag and still come home and have a warm plate of food in front of us. Yeah, We're not that far removed where that wasn't the case, mm-hmm. you know? So I think what you're describing there, being able to pick up on those subtle body language cues, those subtle 
behaviors, how how they're raking a tree, how they look at another deer that's yeah. coming, how they look at another deer that's you don't even know is there, and like you look at a deer and you can tell just by the way they have their ears that there's another deer around. You have yeah. no idea where it is. Yeah. You have no idea where it is, but you can tell by how it's looking and how its ears ears are that there's another deer around. Like those are totally things that we pick up on that help mm-hmm. us be successful in the woods. Yeah, it's it's funny you say it. you can tell that it's looking at another deer. The reason this I guess came up in my head even was I was hunting uh, a week ago or whatever and glassed up a buck and he was a pretty nice buck but we'd been seeing some bigger ones in the area so I'm kind of watching him glassing him and I was with Cole and I kept telling him I'm like that there's another buck and like I kind of think that he halfway maybe didn't like just was like yeah Zach's full of it you know but I'm like he's just He's he's doing this thing where the way he's looking is just telling you that there's something else over there. And sure enough, when we started really picking it apart, glass, and there was another buck laying there that was bigger than him. And even even you could even tell that the deer he was looking at was a bigger buck than he was. You know, he he was uh, kind of timid. Let's put it that way. So it's pretty yeah. interesting. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I really want to ask you for my own sake of feeling like if I should invest time in learning it or not is when you've done or read about any of these studies, have you seen any correlation with like moon or moon phases? Cause obviously that's a huge thing with hunters. I've never paid any attention to it, but I'm wondering if I should. Um, so I think we could lump in a lot of different um, weather variables with moon phase here when we talk about this. They're the only study that I'm aware of that has documented any kind of uh, statistically significant effect of moon phase on deer movement is one out of Penn State. Um, There have been others that have looked at it, and they're, as far as I'm aware... I, there haven't been that much, that many studies that have looked at how moon phase affects either deer movement rates or the time of day that deer are moving. But the ones that I am aware of, none of them, except this Penn State study, have been able to document any significant effect of moon phase on deer movement. And the Penn State study that I'm thinking of, what they essentially chalked it up to was that um, on a full moon deer move, it was something like 50 meters more per day. And it was the, they, their analogy was, it was the equivalent to us taking an extra trip to the bathroom at night. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, when you think Insig- about a insignificant deer, almost, yeah, ma- mature bucks, especially when you get into the kind of the rut time period and they're moving a lot, they're moving four, six, 7,000 yards per day. 50 yards extra per day is insignificant Mm -hmm. in that. Okay. But I will say the one caveat here is that one of the, you know, we've made social media posts and, you know, we just published a, a, a a buck movement extension publication. That's kind of summarizing the results of our research on adult, adult buck movements over the last number of years. We've kind of compiled it all and put it into a very easily digestible document. It's like 30 pages with nice pictures, graphs, all that kind of stuff. The details, uh, the vast majority of our findings on adult buck movement. We've looked at moon phase, 
and have found absolutely no correlation between moon phase and adult buck movement. Now, what I will say is that when we make those social media posts and we talk to people about it, one of the things we commonly hear is, well, you're not looking at luminosity, you know, how bright the moon is. You didn't account for cloud cover. You didn't look at moon position, moon overhead or moon underfoot. I'm not going to say that those uh, factors don't play a role in deer movement because I don't know. I have not studied that. I've never seen anybody else that studied that. My gut is to say that uh, we... <laughs> my gut is to say that as hunters we love to find patterns in things whether or not they exist we love yeah. to see something and be like oh that's an interesting observation and then we'll see it again three weeks later and be like oh there must be a pattern there but we just because that's what our brain wants to do but we neglect all of the observations that we made in the middle that contradict those two observations. That's confirmation bias. That's mm -hmm. one of the things we got to be very careful about as scientists, and we got to be very careful about as hunters. So, while there may there, I'm not saying that there's nothing to uh, moon phase. I'm not saying there's nothing to moon luminosity, moon position, overhead, underfoot, whatever. I have not seen it yet. And based on everything else I've seen with deer response to weather, there are other factors that are way more predictive of deer movement than any of the weather variables. And that is, by and large, time of day. Is it dawn or is it dusk? If it is, deer are going to be moving most, regardless of what the weather is doing, regardless of X, Y, and Z. And is it the rut? If it's the rut and if it's dawn or it's dusk, deer are going to be moving more than they would be at any other time of day, any other time of year. Now, um, I think there is still work to be done on the weather front and on the moon front to uh, look at how weather uh, conditions or moon position, moon whatever, could augment or you know marginally increase deer movement if if moon position or a cold front or whatever uh increases deer movement rates by 15 percent relative to what they would have been without that change in weather then that's something we probably want to pay attention to you know if you if you've only got uh one or two days to hunt per week and you can look at your calendar and say hey uh friday has got a 15 percent greater chance of deer movement than wednesday does then probably take off friday it doesn't mm -hmm. mean you're going to see more deer on friday but it means you got a slightly better chance yeah so there very well may be you know weather variables like that moon variables like that i think there's more work to be done there mm -hmm. um but the work that has been done especially on weather, and there have been a number of studies done on weather, a number of studies done on weather, from Texas to Mississippi to all over the place. And those studies, if they find any significant influence of weather on deer movement, it is hit or miss. It is not consistent. It's not for every buck. It's not all the time. It's these little tiny changes in deer movement rates that even if it's statistically significant, you, you look at it on a graph and it makes you, it really makes you second guess. Like, is that, is that a legit effect or is that just something random going on? Uh, and so there very well may be, but I guess what I'm getting at is, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't either. Cause I've never seen anything 
but I don't also necessarily have a good gauge on what the moon is doing every day that I go hunting, you know. So where on the other hand, over time you build even just an instinct on weather, like in the moment, you start to feel weather shift and your instinct might tell you, well, I need to do this or do that. Maybe I stay, maybe I go. I feel like those are things that you can pick up on, but like moon wise, I've just never paid any attention to it. I know some people, you know, live by the moon and, and will choose to go hunting on specific days. But I just was curious if you had any, any, uh, opinion on that. But one of the other questions that came up that I was thinking about when you were talking about some of that was the rut and kind of a theory that I've been this is all just, you know, hunter theory. This is Zach making up stuff based off of what Let's he's seeing it. out there. Let's go, baby. So I, I, I'm I 100% like on board with a lot of studies I've seen about Midwest specifically. So like I grew up in Ohio, then I lived in Iowa. Now I live in Colorado and like I've hunted a lot of places in between there that there's this peak of rut activity around mid-November. Like, that's just kind of consistent. But one of the most interesting things to me, and I, I always kind of try to pick on, like, hunter, uh, common hunter ideas and mentalities, is like, November 1, the switch is on. December 1, the switch is off. And truthfully, I think that that's, like, pretty ridiculous. Like, I'm not saying that. The peak in the middle of November is not your best chance to bump into rut activity. And I also recognize that depending on where you're at in the country, you being in Mississippi right now, is going to be different more than likely than what you're going to see up in PA. Mm -hmm. But my theory on it is, is like, if bucks have antlers that don't have velvet on them, they're kind of in the game for rut. Mm -hmm. I feel that we're, we're so, it's so common to just be like, well, the rut's shut off. Well, just because it's November 20th and people are blasting guns up in Wisconsin doesn't necessarily mean that the rut's over there. I just think that our ability to see that activity goes down. Deer hit the cover when the guns start going off. But I guess my point with all of this is, is, is there some truth to my theory? Like, is there truth to the fact that just because it's December 19th doesn't mean that you're not going to have the craziest rut hunt of your life? I mean, in the Midwest. Yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I don't disagree with anything you just said. <laughs> I, I really, I'm, I really don't. Um, and I think, I think there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of validity to that. And it's really hard like your your comment about just because it's November or December or whatever and the guns are going off in Wisconsin, it's really hard to disentangle hunting pressure and deer breeding activity because mm -hmm. br the breeding is going to get done. Mm -hmm. And bucks are going to be moving in daylight. Now, they might be choosing to move in areas with really thick cover and they might a buck might move a thousand yards and be extremely visible he might be moving through food plots he might be moving through ag fields he might be crossing roads he might be moving through open timber stands 
that same buck can move a thousand yards and not move and not travel 200 yards from his starting point. Mm-hmm. He's just moving around an area, dogging a doe or fighting with other bucks or foraging or doing whatever. So it, it can be hard to disentangle the effect that the rut has on breeding activity and how receptive does in the area are changing how deer move and blah, blah, blah with hunting pressure because, you know, deer get holed up away from hunting pressure. Mm-hmm. And one of the other, um, I guess one of the other things that I would note there just based on what I've seen and also what the science says about it, like hunters – we often hear about when the peak of the rut is right. And we say, Oh, the peak of the rut is November 13th or whatever. And sometimes we get that information from our state wildlife agency or our just observations we've made in the tree stand or whatever. But when we talk about, and I'm just as guilty of this as anybody is, but when, when we talk about the peak of the rut, what we think we're talking about is the, peak of breeding right when most does are receptive and the mean conception date but what we're actually talking about is the peak like chasing and the peak seeking and the peak, peak of scraping. how many bucks we're seeing per hunt <laughs> exactly exactly it's the, it's the peak of how many bucks that we're seeing per hunt and the interactions of those bucks and the number of scrapes we're seeing pop up and that's often happening two weeks before the peak of breeding yep when that peak breeding is happening, you know, there are bucks still all over the place. They're just not as visible. They're not making as much noise. They're not making as many scrapes. They're not doing as much fighting. They're not doing as much of any of that stuff. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I addressed your question at all. No, I think, I think you did. I don't know. Like I said, I kind of like to take a, take a common thought of hunters and just try to challenge it a little bit. I mean, I'm not saying that again, you're going to have all the same action throughout you know, the whole season. But through my observations, I've seen what what we would consider as hunters to be rutting activity, the scrapes, the bucks chasing does. I've seen that into into January in places where I also have seen, you know, a, a peak of it in November. So it's like I've tried to shift my mentality a little bit to say, hey, like I'm going to keep looking for that rutting activity or that high concentration of deer because, for example, if it's after gun season, any time of the year, you're bow hunting again maybe, or even if you are gun hunting and there's been plenty of pressure in the area, if all of a sudden you start seeing a lot of sign, a high concentration of deer, your odds of being around a hot doe just go up and that's that could be the next, you know, craziest day of rut hunting of your life. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, I'll bring it back to something we talked about a few minutes ago, deer being individuals, just as much as bucks are individuals and how they move across the landscape, where they like to spend their time, how big their home range is, how aggressive they are, how big their antlers are, all of these things. Does are just as much individuals and when they come into estrus. Now mm-hmm. they're I don't want to make that blanket statement because that's it's a little more nuanced than that because there's some evolutionary cues that mm-hmm. uh constrain the time that a doe should conceive, which predicts when she will have her fawn, which predicts how successful that fawn will be and its likelihood for survival. Mm-hmm. So there are those kind of environmental constraints on that. And then there are, you know, deer density constraints and the health of the doe and all of these things that we don't need to get into. But my point is that 
there's a lot of it's not like it's not like on November thirteenth because that's the peak of breeding. That's when all of your does are in estrus and standing estrus. That's not when they're all receptive. There's about a 40, 45 day window when 90% of breeding takes place. And that's a pretty good rule of thumb for the vast majority of deer populations. Now, if you get into really skewed sex ratios where things are really out of whack, it can, things can get really weird. But a good rule of thumb is a 45 day window when 90 to 95% of your breeding takes place. So, I mean, that's, that's easily three weeks on either side of peak breeding. So when guys are like, oh, if it's not November 4th through November 11th, I'm not going to be in the woods. Well, you're very likely missing a good, a good four or five weeks of hunting. Yeah. You know? And it, it's definitely like, I mean, my personal favorite time to be in the woods is that, you know, the, for most of the United States, it's like Halloween. I love to be in the wood. Now for here, it's like five days ago (laughs) because our rut is so much later than everywhere else's. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's that Halloween timeframe. It's not in peak breeding. It's a solid two weeks before peak breeding because that's just when it's really fun to be in the woods. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say, well, let me put it this way. I have had really fun, uh, really exciting sits on halloween plus or minus a few days you know when i was living in virginia hunting in pennsylvania whatever and i've had really exciting hunts in mississippi at that kind of equivalent pre-rut time frame you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like about two weeks before the rut so when i'm looking at my schedule and i'm i'm saying this because i want people to think about this and how they choose when they're going to hunt when I look at my schedule and I'm like, I've got X, Y, and Z to do, and I've only got these, I've only got this number of days I can take off to hunt. I prioritize that time frame because I've had a historical experience of having really good hunts in that time frame, and so oftentimes I'll spend four days in a row humping it out in the woods right around that date, and then I'll hunt here and there around the rut, and I'll hunt here and there post rut but I just don't have as much time to invest at the intensity that I did beforehand. So Mm -hmm. I don't have as many deer observations post rut. Whereas if I had taken that four days where I really had time to hunt and shifted it from, instead of being October 31st, I shifted it to November 31st. It's very likely I would have had the same similar success, you know? Mm -hmm. And again, it's hard to disentangle how, hunting pressure plays into all of this because you're hunting public land has just been getting absolutely hammered by people and bullets and deer getting drug out of the woods and trucks and you know x y and z all over the place that certainly plays a role but if we just kind of control for hunting pressure i think it's very plausible that you would have just as good of a hunt in the middle of october as you would in the middle of december Mm -hmm. you know yeah and your your strategy has to change your strategy has to change and what you're queuing in on but the likelihood is there. Mm-hmm. I feel that the more experience that I get at different times of the season, just based off of one season, I might go on a hunt and then go home and edit for a week or so, or maybe a little longer and miss that whole part of the season that last year I was successful on or had a bunch of action on. It seems like the more that I just, you know, have oddball times of the year that I'm out, the more I'm like, I guess creating this theory, right, that I brought up is, well, rutting activity just seems to be whenever you're around it. Not, I mean, 
there's obviously, like you said, there's some, there are hard facts there, but at the same time, there's a trickle off of that peak that you can bump into it kind of at any given time of the season. So long as the bucks have their antlers, like the one that pops into my mind is one time we were either in Alabama, I think we were in Alabama and we were, I mean, in this thick, we were turkey hunting though. It was March. We're in this thick stand of pines driving down a gravel road and a doe jumps across the road. Who's right behind her? None other than big old buck. And it's like, I mean, I'm not saying that they were actively breeding, but you got to kind of wonder about, about a buck with what appeared to be locked down with the doe. Yep. He was going everywhere she was. And it was March. I mean, turkey season was either open or it was going to be open like the next day. So it was mid-March. And it's just crazy that you can see such a, you know, broad time frame where that activity is taking place. And that, that's not to discourage. I don't bring this up to discourage hunters. I actually bring it up to encourage them to have confidence, even if, you know, you get past that time of the season where you've had success before, you know, usually you're done by now, but, you know, your confidence might go down if that's, I don't know, if that's the case. But Well, I'll, I will say that, um, and I don't have any uh, data to support this, but I have had, I've observed this several times. Uh, when it's, uh, so our rut peaks here in the last week of December through our, our peak breeding here is basically Christmas week through the first few days of January. So I, when I'm, when I'm in the woods, the first couple weeks of December, so December 10th through basically Christmas, I can very consistently get on good rut activity there's bucks chasing does you're seeing all sorts of crazy stuff consistently now you might not be seeing like you know five bucks a day or just bucks dog and does all over the place but like you're consistently in deer Mm -hmm. like and you can set up in crappy spots like i'm you know i i do that all the time set up in crappy (laughs) spots i'm like what am i even doing sitting in this tree right now this is a terrible spot and here comes here comes bucks chasing a doe it's like what in the world is going on here like i see that fairly consistently in that pre-rut to peak rut time frame but then when i shift into the late season which for us is you know late january about a month after peak breeding i don't run into that consistency near like mm-hmm. i do when it's the pre-rut yeah but if i hunt enough i every year that i've really given it the time i always find a spot that i you could not convince me it wasn't pre-rut I mean, mm-hmm. it is just like you're in them, and there are just it's because there's a hot. It's probably what my the way my brain works. There's probably a hot, and it's not just one doe. It's multiple does. You can tell there's multiple hot does in the area. There's bucks. I mean, it's just like a a, a neodymium magnet pulling everything in, just like really strong. And I think what it is is there's probably just a doe group of related does that are coming into estrus mm-hmm. at the same time. And they're a little bit later than everybody else, or it's a bunch of fawns, you know, or it's a, it's for whatever random chance, a couple of does that didn't get bred or were not receptive on their first estrus cycle. And that is phenomenal hunting, you know, mm-hmm. and it, that's not as consistent, you know, we we're all about immediate gratification, instant gratification. We want to go out in the woods 
and we want to hit them rattling antlers together and we want to have bucks charging in there. I mean, that's fun. Don't get me wrong. That's fun. It's fun to, you know, be sitting and have three bucks work the same scrape in an afternoon. It's fun to have bucks sparring out in the food plot. It's fun to see bucks chasing does in front of your stand all morning long. But like that lasts for a couple weeks out of the year. And if you're fortunate enough to really get to hunt those couple weeks and get to punch your tag, awesome. But if you're not, like, I wouldn't be discouraged at all. You might have to work a little bit harder to get in them, like you're Mm -hmm. saying. But I wouldn't be – I'm more encouraged. I'm so excited to hunt the late season, you know, because, like, yeah, it's going to take me – it's probably going to take me five or six or seven hunts before I maybe even see a deer. Yeah. But when I see a deer, it's a good chance – things are going to be happening you know yeah so it's, yep. it's it's fun i think you learn a lot hunting that way yeah if you just if you just do the same thing all the time you sit in the same stands you enter from the same way you don't scout new areas you do the same thing you're not forcing yourself to learn you're not forcing yourself to do anything new you're just you're you're all you're doing is uh constraining your success to be what you've experienced in the past Right. And sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. But if you really get out there and you scout new areas and you hunt hard and you hunt the whole season, early season to rut to late season, if you do all of that, like I've learned so much more about deer. I mean, I would argue that I've probably learned more about deer and they're, what they're actually doing on the landscape and what they're actually eating. Mm-hmm. I probably learned more about deer doing that than I ever would you know, sitting behind a computer or reading a textbook. I mean, you get out there and uh, kill a deer in the late season and cut open their rumen and look at what they're eating. I mean, if you've got any kind of knowledge of plants, I'm always surprised. I'm like, what? You're, you're eating gallberry? Like, like 90% of your rumen is gallberry? Like, we just think of, you know, I don't mean to go on a plant tangent, but we just think of certain plants as very low-quality deer foods, you know? Mm-hmm. And then... You go into an area that you think has pretty high-quality forage available throughout the winter, and they're eating nothing but gallberry. And then, so guess what? Guess that what that does for me next year? I'm like, oh, gallberry. I should probably be mm-hmm. focusing in on gallberry that time of year. So, like, yeah. so it just it kind of helps me learn, kind of helps you adapt, evolve as a hunter. Yeah, that's a good point. That's probably something I ought to do more of is cut them open and see what they're eating because I – I only base that off of observation. So, like, what am I seeing a deer actively eating or, you know, walking past, you know, and base it off of that. One of the questions that I think that I – I think I wanted to ask it when we stopped by a couple springs ago, but I don't think I did. Again, loving to challenge a good common, common thought process of hunters. One of the things that I hear all the time is, I shot this buck a couple of years ago. This buck showed up and they've got the same genetics. It's the same, you know, this buck's probably this one's granddad. Mm. Is there any truth to that? Um, maybe. Okay. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think, and that's hard to say because like, it's possible that they are, but mm-hmm. when you look at the studies that have been done, there have been some recently that have come out of Texas A&M, really good studies looking at the heritability of antler characteristics. They're generally pretty low. Mm-hmm. Like, if a buck's got a really unique set of antlers, there's not a great chance. I'm talking about, like, uh, 
a crab claw on the left side and a kicker off his G2 on the right side. Like there is a, there's not a good chance that his offspring are going to have that same antler characteristic because mm-hmm. a, the heritability of, uh, uh, main beam length, tine characteristics, inside spread mass, whatever is not very good as is, but then you throw the dough into the mix and it's just like, it's a melting pot. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, you see people out there that, like me, for example, I don't look a whole lot like either of my parents, but I look a lot like one of my mom's brothers. So it's like, I mean, it's like, it's complicated for the genetic reason because mm-hmm. the the heritability is not great. And a lot of the antler characteristics that people pick up on, they're not very uncommon. They'll see a crab claw and be like, oh, there's two crab claw bucks. They must be related. It's like... What percentage of bucks do you think got a crab claw? It's a decent percentage of bucks that have a crab claw. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean it's not it's not eighty percent, but I'd say fifteen or twenty percent of bucks, mature sure. bucks, have some kind of crab claw one year or the other. So that's one component of it. The other component of it is generally speaking, when a doe drops a buck fawn, if that doe is not harvested, she's gonna kick that buck fawn off the following year, right? He's going to disperse. And it's not by choice. He's doing it because his mom stands up on her hind legs and beats the crap out of them. <laughs> or she, I mean, she runs him off. Or if that Actually doesn't happen, does, yeah. yeah. And if that doesn't happen, he gets into his first fall and, you know, he's a, he's a yearling buck and he gets into his first fall and he starts running into bucks that are big and they're mean and they're aggressive. And he's like, I'm not hanging out around here. And he goes, let's just say, let's just come up with an absurd example just to demonstrate a point. Let's say an adult doe has 10 years of buck fawns with the same buck. So the same sire and the same doe for 10 years, right? First of all, that's extremely unlikely. First of all, for a doe to be producing buck fawns every year for 10 years, very unlikely. Second of all, for the same buck to be siring those offspring for 10 years in a row, it's near impossible. Mm-hmm. But let's say this happens, okay? And so for 10 years in a row, a doe is dropping a buck fawn, and that doe you know, has her home range, and it's not changing much from year to year. She's going to kick those buck fawns out every year, and they're going to disperse. They're not going the same direction, right? Mm-hmm. They're not going the same direction. So the likelihood of A, the same doe and the same buck producing the same the same antler characteristics is very low because A, the, the same doe and the same buck are very unlikely to meet each other again and to reproduce and produce a buck fawn. B, the antler characteristics of the sire are not super heritable, right? Especially when you factor in the doe. And C, the likelihood of them ending up in the same place is not very good. <laughs> so... Like, is it possible? Absolutely, it's possible. There, you know, there. There's this thing we talk about uh, when we're talking about uh, deer genetic characteristics and how they're passed on from one generation to the next, and it's called breeding value. For example, if a buck with a really high breeding value has 170 inch antlers, which is way above the population average, his offspring are more likely to have above average antlers than a buck bucks offspring with a low breeding value so then we've got breeding value thrown into the mix and breeding value tends to be some bucks are really high some bucks are really low you can have a buck with 
uh, crab claw on one side and a 14-inch G2 with a kicker and all of these things, if he's got a low breeding value, his offspring might have just the most basic basket rack eight-point frame you've ever seen in your life. He might not have a crab claw. He might not have a kicker. He might not have anything, you know? Mm -hmm. But then you have other bucks with a really high breeding value, and they might throw some of those same characteristics. But I guess the point of it all is that there is so much noise going on in deer breeding and in deer dispersal that the likelihood of you seeing some unique antler characteristic and thinking it's from the same buck or the same brothers of bucks or whatever is, is possible. Right. And there are certainly, there are certainly cases where it happens, but, um, if you're looking at something like a crab claw or a little kicker off the brow time for mature bucks or two 10 pointers, (laughs) yeah, two, two 10 pointers. It's like, it's probably not, you know, (laughs) probably not. You can believe, you can believe what you want. People can believe what they want. And like, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not my job as a researcher. It's not scientist's job to tell people what to believe. Right. right. Oh yeah. It's not now, your job as a, it's not your job as a podcaster to tell people what to believe or even how to hunt. You're a very successful hunter, but it's not your job to tell people how to hunt. No. You tell them what works for you. We tell them the science and they can take it and leave it. They can take it and run with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, yeah. I couldn't agree more on that. The, the, re- the reason that I ever started questioning that myself was it would have been back in 2015. I was hunting with Greg, who did a lot of deer research and was on a lot of projects back when he was in college in Nebraska. And I asked him, like, what was the most interesting thing that you learned from, from research? And he just immediately snapped, snapped off the answer of um, buck dispersal. Like, once bucks hit a certain age... They just, generally speaking, will take off long distances. Not, not long distances as like they go to the neighbor's woods. Long distances as, like, miles over ten miles. miles you know, long long range travel. And when I thought of that, I thought, well, it almost evolution wise makes sense for the buck. And this happens with like tons of different species, right? Like. The males get pushed away, like you said. So that way they don't have inbred deer. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, that makes sense. So kind of that idea then of, which I had bought into completely, the idea of, oh, that's, you know, the offspring of this buck because they have the same general antler configuration. Started just being like, well, you know, I've actually seen before, once you really start thinking about it too, seen a buck in one state that looks identical or not like pretty dang close to another buck in a totally different state. And it's like, I think maybe just deer have, you know, I mean, people uh, are the same way. One of the most fascinating things to me about traveling more and more over the years has been like everywhere I go, I see people that kind of look like, Oh, that kind of looks like my buddy or that kind of looks like, you know, that person from my hometown, you know? And it's like, as, as you go to more places, you see how, true i mean or just pay attention to it in general even around even around where you live it's kind of it's kind of interesting how similar people can look at times but deer probably just the same way and i mean it, it, i think like you said not to say one way or the other it's just something that made me rethink 
the simplicity of being like, well, that's just that Buck's grandson. <laughs> well, eh, I don't know. It seems pretty complicated for me to just say it that willy nilly, but that's that's just my thoughts on that. Yeah, it seems. <laughs> yeah, that explanation seems so simple. Yet when you really dig into it, it's so complicated. Yeah, you know, that's that Buck's grandson. It's like, well, you break down. If you break down every step of probability necessary for that to happen, that is way less likely to be the case than they just look alike. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, I guess before we open up another can of worms, I figure we better wrap up. That way you stay on you stay on time. But let's just plan on doing more in the future, man. Because I got – I, I, I really enjoyed this. I hope everybody listening enjoys it as much as I do. I'm sure they do because you're obviously a very, very, very knowledgeable character. So I appreciate, I appreciate you taking the time to well, talk. Yeah, I thank you very much for allowing me on here, and uh, I've had a lot of fun. But I will tell you the same thing I told you already, and the listeners just keep your expectations low because this is more like this is more likely a fluke that I sounded like I knew what I was talking about than that's actually the case. Hey, it's just same. like it's just like the Bucks being related when they have similar antler characteristics. More likely not the case. <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, I guess uh, you guys are doing a lot of stuff on the social media pages right like mm -hmm. you tell people where to go to check that out because i think that stuff's cool yeah we we try to and a lot of our uh, activity on our social media platforms depends a lot on what time of year it is when it's hunting season not a whole lot's going on yeah um and uh our the objective of our social media presence is to you know, we've been talking a lot about deer hunting today and, you know, what deer do and what we observe in the woods and all of these things. And that's because we're deer hunters and this is what we find interesting. Mm -hmm. The the One of the primary objectives of our research here at the MSU Deer Lab is to address common questions, concerns, uh, whatever, of hunters, landowners, and management agencies, whether that's state, your state biologists federal agencies whatever so they come up with questions and they may be about how weather influences deer movement they may be about how hunting pressure influences deer movement it might be about how prescribed fire timing influences forage availability on the landscape it might be about how food plot management practices influence x y or z it might be about disease concerns i mean we do all sorts of research on all sorts of stuff and the purpose of it is to answer questions that are important to uh, hunters, landowners, and deer biologists and managers. And we are the objective of our social media platform is to very simply take what we learn in the scientific, you know, hottie toddy world of everything. I don't say hottie toddy because of Ole Miss, because <laughs> we know how we feel about Ole Miss around here. But our objective of it is to take all of that, you know, you know, big science stuff and make it make sense from a hunter's perspective, from a landowner, from somebody that can actually take that information and implement it on their property to be more successful or meet their objectives or whatever it may be. So we post a lot of stuff about food plots. We post a lot of stuff about uh, deer movement. We post a lot of stuff about prescribed fire. We post a lot of stuff about just stuff that uh, 
the average guy, average gal with a social, with a Facebook page or an Instagram page scrolling through, they see it and they're like, oh, I could use that on my property. I could use that for my deer management. I could use that in my food plot, you know, whatever it may be. So, um, uh, on Instagram or Facebook, just search MSU Deer Lab and we're on there. We try to post, you know, every week, every two weeks. It's very, sometimes it's five times a week. Sometimes it's not once for five weeks. So just, you know. I think it's awesome because, like you said, it just helps simplify everything and make it available for for us. And I think it's, yep. yeah, that's that's the type of stuff, the type of stuff that you guys are posting about and learning about and, you know, just helping others with is what I believe is, you know, those are the best things for mm the resource and i think it's yeah. you know I, it's much appreciated i, I suppose because I, I feel that uh without that you know our ideas and theories could go the wrong direction real quick <laughs> yeah thank you thank you for saying that that's that's totally what our um goal is for our outreach programs and in addition to you know some people are on facebook and instagram some people aren't we've got a youtube channel that we you know kind of try to do a lot of the same stuff for but in video format and then we've got Deer University podcast, and you can look that up, and you know you can listen to this kind of conversation. But uh, it's coming from people that are a lot more intelligent than I am, and they know <laughs> what they're talking about a lot more. So, like, I mean, we've just got a load, loads of information out there about everything from deer hunting to deer biology to deer management to managing for trophy bucks to managing for traditional deer management when you don't care about antler size, you just want to shoot the most deer, like. You know, I think I, I believe as humbly as I can say it, that the MSU Deer Lab has done a really good job over the last decades of being a good resource for hunters, land, land owners, managers, and biologists for their deer management questions. So come yeah. check us out, give us a follow, and we'll try not to disappoint you too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Luke. And uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to have to just, as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to be texting you and be like, yeah, we'll just... Let me know whenever because I really enjoyed it. And, yeah, we'll do it again for sure. All right, man. Thanks for having me on. Good to yeah, see you. Yeah, thank you.